Okay, this evening is going to work a little differently to the previous three sessions. Um, I'm sorry to say, I'm going to be doing more talking, <laughs> and there will be less time for discussion overall. That's because as I was revisiting this talk from the first time I did it, I realised I was essentially trying to do two things in one, and not really doing them justice. And I got a lot of questions afterwards that I thought, I'm just not sure I've explained myself very well. <laughs> so I'm trying to do better this time. And we're going we're gonna to do the first half, and then we're going to have a little discussion in the middle. Um, just time for reflection, time for a couple of questions, and then we'll move on to the second part. Um, this is, of all of the topics we've done, uh, looking at how God cannot change and even how he cannot suffer, fair to say I think the most controversial area of the, the doctrine of God over the last... 150 years or so. Um, I will try and deal with some of the questions that have come up as we go through, though I'm not going to go into all of the sort of revision, revisionist theology because that would just take too long and I don't think scripture justifies it anyway. So <laughs> let me pray <laughs> and then we'll, um, we'll make a start. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be here this evening. Um, thank you for freedom to gather. Thank you for um, freedom to read your word and see what it says together. And we thank you for how you have revealed yourself to us there as a God who is just mind-blowing, <laughs> who is beyond us in so many ways, and yet you make yourself known. You make yourself gloriously known in the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you'd help us to, to know you that bit better this evening, to love you that bit more, to trust you more wholeheartedly. Would we be reassured and comforted that you are an utterly reliable and good God? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start with a question, um, which is, when, when do you struggle with change? Have a think for a moment. What kind of changes don't you like in life? All the changes. All the changes, <laughs> okay. I'm guessing even if you are an early, an early adopter and you love most change, there will still be some changes that you struggle with. Um, we might have struggled with disappointment over the last three years with COVID because we had to postpone or cancel various plans. You know, friends of mine had to push back their weddings once or twice or even three times. People had to postpone holidays, career moves, house moves. And I'm not sure anyone enjoyed that. <laughs> We might struggle with the effects of ageing as it strips away perhaps the, the good looks or the sporting prowess that we once took pride in. We might struggle with the erosion of Christian values and freedoms in our country's culture and, and our laws as they threaten our comfort, as they make us feel more and more like outsiders. So I suspect we all struggle with change somewhere even if none of those examples quite hit the nail on the head for you. And change is very revealing, because it, 
It's often only when something is taken away from us that we realise how much we depended on it for our sense of security. Perhaps we even idolised it, looking to that thing for our happiness in a way that we should only look to God. But we don't see that until it's gone. And because we habitually place so much hope in changing and created things, I think we inevitably end up disappointed time and again in this life. We live in a world that could always change for the better, but often changes for the worst. And we won't escape that until the new creation. So this world will always disappoint. But the good news is that we worship a God who does not ever change. And that means he can be our rock, as the Psalms say. He can be a solid and dependable place of refuge and strength. And because he cannot change, he can never disappoint. So we're going to explore God's unchanging nature. We're going to start with how scripture affirms it. And that will be quite an involved section. So once we've finished that bit, we're going to pause. That's when we'll have our first time for questions, reflection. And then we will move on to some of the questions that this topic raises. If God can't change, does, does he have emotions? What does it mean when scripture says he's angry? Can God suffer? And how can I relate to a God who doesn't change? And I hope that we all see it is a great comfort that God cannot change or suffer. And we'll see as well how comforting it is that this God nevertheless chose to become one of us and to experience change and suffering in Jesus. And as we start, I just want to put in our minds an, an analogy that I hope will help as we go through this, because a lot of it is complex, and it's, it's pushing at the, sort of the limits of our, our understanding of God. It would be, it, well, it does seem impossible from a human point of view to, to fully understand, to my mind, at least all of what Scripture says about God and how that fits together. That's perhaps not surprising, that's perhaps quite natural and right, because how could we possibly expect to understand an uncreated and eternal being when we are so finite? So I want to suggest that in some ways what, what the Bible gives us is like the guardrails or barriers down the side of a bowling alley that you use maybe when you're a kid, maybe still, if you don't bowl very regularly. To, to make sure that the, the ball doesn't go into the gutter and you've still got a fighting chance of knocking down some pins. We can't fit together in a way that our minds perfectly make sense of everything in Scripture. But if we keep in place the barriers that Scripture gives us, we'll be bowling, so to speak, in roughly the right direction when we think and speak about God. We can't exhaust him, we can't know him as he knows himself, but we will be on the right lines. So with that said, how do we know that God is unchanging? And firstly, 
I want to say that God's unchanging nature is implied by the other attributes that we've discussed in this series. Because God alone is uncreated, that means he's unrivaled. Everything else depends on him for its its existence. So nothing can equal him in power. Any power that we have as creatures is underpinned by God because, as Paul says in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. So our power is totally dependent upon his creating and sustaining power. And that means our power can't exceed his because it's from him all along. It's a bit like perhaps how an electric light bulb on a dimmer switch can't gain more power and brightness than you allow it to as you're twiddling the dial. The bulb doesn't have power in itself. It depends on what comes from the main supply. And I guess we could say it's a bit like that with God and us. His power underpins ours. Incredibly, this means that even the devil depends on God for his existence. Though God isn't guilty of the devil's rebellious choices. And that means that even the devil can't rival God. He can't harm God's divine nature. He can't force him to change his plans. Rather, God sovereignly directs all things, even the evil choices of his creatures, for good. So his motives remain pure, even while the devil's motives are utterly wicked. God remains uncompromised by the rebellion of his creatures. If you want to read an example of where that plays out in scripture, um, Isaiah chapter 10, I think it is, where God is speaking about Assyria as the rod of his judgment, and yet accusing them for their, their wicked and rebellious motives for coming against Israel. That that gives us an example of what I'm talking about. So God cannot be forced to change by anything external because he is uncreated and unrivaled. Any attempt by his creatures to change him is, is a bit like a lump of clay trying to resist the potter as she shapes it into her chosen design of bowl or cup or whatever. And secondly... God has no reason to change from inside himself because he is self-sufficient. He has no deficiency that he needs to make up for. When he says, I am who I am, to Moses, he really means it. He is all that he is, eternally and entirely from his own resources. And what he is, is good. So there's no room for improvement. God has no reason to change. And because there is no deficiency, no lack in God, that also means there's nothing that we can use to manipulate him. We can't bolster his ego with our praise or make him owe us one by just serving that bit extra at church or giving that bit more money. And we can't provoke him to change by our sin so that he becomes overwhelmed by uncontrollable rage and flies off the hook and acts out of character or forgets his promises. We can't manipulate God. 
So God has no reason to change because he is self-sufficient and complete. There's no unfulfilled potential of him, in him, nothing more for him to become. He simply is. And what he is, is good and glorious. So God's unchanging nature is implied by his other attributes, and we've seen week by week that those are well supported in Scripture. But in case we were in any doubt, he also affirms his unchangingness explicitly several times through the Bible. Now some of these verses are included in the list at the the top of your handout for this session. I read recently, taking the Bible as a whole, one scholar did a study where he found it was either just over 1,000 or just over 4,000 passages that suggest that God cannot change, does not change, versus only 105 that suggest he does change, which already shows you you which way the balance lies. But I want to zoom in particularly on... um, 1 Samuel chapter 15. On the one hand, we we get God stating explicitly here that he is unchanging, but this is also a chapter where we see that this is a a difficult doctrine that we need patience and humility in in handling. So 1 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is where God takes the kingship away from Saul because of Saul's self-serving disobedience. He won't carry out God's commands in full. And Samuel has, has said this to Saul, but Saul protests, he asks for forgiveness. And in verse uh, 29, this is what Samuel declares. He who is the glory of Israel, God, does not lie or change his mind. For he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Now this sounds straightforward. God isn't like us, so he doesn't change his mind. Fair enough. But in verses 11 and 35 of the same chapter, it says in the NIV that God regrets making Saul king. The particular Hebrew words translated regret here could also be translated as repenting or being grieved or changing one's mind. And it's the same word as in verse 29, where the NIV translates it as change his mind. If you were to uh, look up the King James Bible on Bible Gateway, you'd see it's more obvious there because it translates the word as repent in all three cases. So God repents that he set up Saul as king in verse 11. He does not lie or repent in verse 29. And he repented that he had made Saul king over Israel in verse 35. So what on earth is going on here? Does God repent and change his mind or doesn't he? You can see why we need to approach this passage with care. And firstly, I want to say that we shouldn't distrust Samuel's words. This isn't carelessness, because we're told in chapter 3, in verse 19, that the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. What we read here is deliberate. It's not a mistake. Secondly, we should remember that, as I said earlier, lots of other places in Scripture state quite clearly that God does not change far more than the number of passages that suggest he does change. Malachi 3, verse 6, is one of the clearest. I, the Lord, do not change, so you 
the descendants of Jacob are not destroyed. Or James, chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So we have to read verses that do suggest change in light of the emphatic statements to the contrary. We're not at liberty to set one part of the Bible in opposition to another. Thirdly, when a word has a range of possible nuances to its meaning, like this one, we need to let the context determine what it means in each specific occurrence, both the immediate context of the passage and the wider context of Scripture as a whole. So it's quite legitimate to to deduce from verse 11 and 35 that God is, in one sense, genuinely grieved by Saul's sin. In these instances, the Hebrew word tells us perhaps more about God's disappointment in Saul than the permanence of his decision to give Saul the kingship. But equally in verse 29, once he's spoken his decision to remove Saul, he will not reverse it. And so the nuance here is clearly that God will not change his mind. His decision to to appoint Saul was conditional. That actually became clear in chapter 13. But his decision to remove him is irrevocable. He will not change his mind. All of these things help us up to a point. But perhaps the most important thing, I think, to remember is that in all of this language of change or grief or repentance, God is accommodating himself to our limited perspective. Just like when scripture describes him as having arms or nostrils. He doesn't actually have arms or nostrils. He is an uncreated spirit. But he describes himself in this way so that we can understand something of how he relates to creation. And in the same way, God does not change in himself. But what changes is our created, time-bound perspective on him. We can't see or understand all of what an eternal, unchanging God is like from our limited perspective on earth. We, We can't grasp it over an entire lifetime, never mind from day to day. It's a bit like trying to see the dark side of the moon while standing on the earth. It's beyond the scope of our vision to see the whole surface of the moon at once. So how much more is it impossible to see all of what God is like at once? He can only show us a little bit of his character at a time because we are bound by time and space. It's a bit like when you shine white light through a a prism of glass. The white light is refracted through the prism into its different components. Infrared light, the colours of the rainbow, and ultraviolet light. And in a similar way, I guess we could say that God's eternal, unchanging nature is refracted by time and space. So that we see different aspects of it one by one in succession. And those different aspects are revealed in response to our actions. So, for example, in Saul's day, God was 
both as loving and as just as ever. But Saul's perspective on God changed. First he saw God's love displayed as he was graciously raised up to the throne and then giving victory over the Philistines. But then he saw God's justice displayed in response to his disobedience as God removed the kingship from him and sent an evil spirit to torment him. From the human perspective, it looked very much like God had changed or changed his mind about Saul. So the language of regret or repentance in verses 11 and 35 was communicating something true. God was not pleased with Saul's sin. And God had begun to deal differently with Saul in time and space. But behind the scenes, God's overarching plan had not changed at all. And nor had his heart. He was just revealing the next step of his plan, if you like, in response to Saul's failure. And to touch very briefly on a a key theme in 1 Samuel, Saul was the kind of king the people wanted, a, a king like the pagan nations around them, outwardly impressive, but not necessarily having true fear of God. And God appointed Saul temporarily to show the people what a bad idea that was. But it was always God's plan to raise up another king, a king after his own heart, reflecting his own choice. And that king would be David initially, and ultimately Jesus. So God appeared to repent from a human perspective, and David looked like plan B. But God's plan never actually changed, and nor did God himself. It was Saul's perspective on him, the perspective of his people as a whole, that changed. God does not change. Our perspective on him changes. Now that's where we're going to pause. Um, Can I suggest you take a moment just to process, to scribble down questions, um, maybe to pray, (laughs) Um, maybe to ask for strength if you're... Your mind is already frazzled. Um, And then in a a moment, I'll, I'll open it up for a couple of questions before we continue. So I have a question. Hmm. Just that one occurred to me because it's 
It just seems like a verbal contradiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think given the the weighting of, of different passages being sort of so much more towards a God who can't change than towards a God who can. Mm. I still want to lean towards nothing having changed in God himself. Mm. Um, that probably pushes me towards viewing that um, anointing on Eli's family as perhaps as conditional, similar to Saul's kingship, but we don't learn about it till afterwards. Saul's, we're not told when Saul is made king. Oh, by the way, this is conditional. We don't find out till two, three chapters later. And I, th- I think it's almost, when we're, when we're thinking about the priesthood, that seems the way with Israel as a whole. We see Exodus 19. Israel as a whole is told it's going to be a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. But then when they rebel at Sinai and make the golden calf, only the family of Levi come and help Moses put down the rebellion. And so it seems like at that point the people have have lost their status as priests and only the tribe of Levi is going to be priests. Um, and it, the, there's nothing in Exodus 19 to suggest that God's words are conditional, but it becomes apparent later that perhaps it was. And I, I wonder if to some extent do we see that with with Israel as a whole? God never, he never abandons his promises to Abraham and there is always an elect remnant in Israel that he is faithful to. Mm. But, you know, so many in Israel, they don't keep the covenant and they suffer for it and their, their experience of God's blessing is conditional on their faithfulness. Just a thought, if you don't want to share it, I wonder if, like, to some extent, Eli's sons and Saul are by presuming on God's promise, you know, God said he'd do this, so we're basically saying to behave as we like. They are actually assuming that God will change, that he will bend his character in order to keep his promise mm-hmm. to them and that he will maybe he won't continue to be righteous and just. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, God can't God can't keep that promise to wicked soul mm. without changing you know without flexing he yeah I don't think that's just a without changing the way he deals with his creatures in time and space. He has to change his character in order to yeah. hold Saul's kingship while Saul is sinning and ignoring him. Like yeah. He'd have to be not the righteous God anymore. Yeah. I wonder if it's the same with it, it, w- towards the end of Israel's time in the land just before the exile where in Ezekiel they're saying oh the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord we've got the temple of the Lord here therefore he'll never send us into exile and it's that same presumption upon yeah because God said my name will dwell here forever Mm. but Ezekiel sees God's presence up and out and off way over the hills yeah One more before we continue. (laughs) (laughs) 
Wow. <laughs> Probably more by God's grace than my explanatory powers. <laughs> Let's continue then. Um, so we've seen that God is unchanging um, in himself. You might be left wondering what that means for God's emotional life. How can he have emotions at all if he's unchanging? And what does it mean when scripture talks about his anger, for example? And if God can't change, presumably that does mean he can't suffer. And if he can't suffer, how can he relate to our pain and suffering? That's been a question that's particularly exercised Christians over the last 100 or 150 years. So these are the questions we're going to explore now. Firstly, what does all of this mean for God's emotions? Well, I think we've got to affirm from the Bible that God has emotions of a sort. It clearly speaks of God's intense love for his people, his finding pleasure in their obedience, his joy when a lost sheep is found. And it also clearly speaks of God's anger and his sorrow over human sin and his longing for Israel's repentance. Scripture even depicts in, in Hosea 11 a kind of anguish in God, if we can call it that. After several chapters of lamenting Israel's appalling spiritual adultery and warning them that God's going to divorce them, as it were, and pour out his righteous anger upon them, God says this in Hosea 11, 8 to 9. You might want to flick there. So Hosea 11, 8 to 9. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admar? How can I make you like Zeboim? Those, those were neighbouring towns destroyed along with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. So whatever God's unchangeableness means, I think we have to say that it can't mean that God has no emotions. It can't mean that he exists in some remote, cold, unfeeling state, untouched by joy or sorrow and ap apathetic towards our joy and sorrow. God clearly, genuinely delights in what is good and he clearly, genuinely hates what is evil. He is also genuinely loving, as 1 John chapter 4 makes clear. Love is one of his basic attributes. And it is because he is God and not a man, as Hosea says, that his overriding desire is to be gracious and save a people for himself from the ruins of sinful humanity. Unlike us, he will not give up on something, however great the obstacles and frustrations in his way. And so he is not going to give up on his plan to have a people for himself to know and enjoy him forever. However great human sin, he is not going to fail to do what he set out to do. 
So God is not emotionless, and his love is the ultimate driving force behind his plan of salvation. But just as he says in Hosea that he is not a man, so his emotions are not exactly like human emotions. Just as we've said all along, God describes himself through analogies. So there isn't a one-to-one correspondence between God's love and ours, or indeed between his anger and ours. And that's partly because God's attributes never come into conflict within him. So, for example, his sense of justice never overwhelms his love in a fit of rage, in the same way that anger can overwhelm us. In us, our different emotions compete with each other. One drives out another as internal and external factors change us and provoke us. But we've already seen that God cannot be changed by anything internal or external because nothing is strong enough to overpower him and because there is nothing lacking inside of him. So our worship doesn't add anything to him and our sin doesn't deprive him of anything. And I think that means that God's emotions must be constant and maximal in himself. His love for and his delight in the beauty of his own nature, which is enjoyed in relationship by Father, Son and Holy Spirit, is constant and always to the max. And so is his love and delight for the beauty and goodness that he has placed in creation, reflecting his own glory. Equally, his hostility to evil is eternal and unwavering. It's not that there is some kind of eternal evil presence for God to be opposed to outside of creation. He alone is eternal. But his very nature, I guess we could say, repels evil, a bit like how two magnets of the same pole refuse to connect. So God's emotions are constant, are maximal, and they are not in conflict. It is God's eternal love for the good that underpins his hostility to evil. It's because he loves and cherishes the goods that he's made in creation that he naturally hates the evil forces at work that attempt to undo his good work. And so his his justice, his desire to preserve the goods, they flow naturally from his love. So God's emotions, his, his attributes even, are not are inseparably linked. They are like different facets of the same diamond, we could say, reflecting the same beauty, but from different angles. So God has emotions, but they are not like ours. He feels things, but not in the same way that we do. And I think we can even say that God does not feel anger inside himself as we would know it. Anger, properly speaking, I think refers to God's eternal hostility to evil, his eternal attribute of justice, 
when it is displayed in time and space. If you remember what we saw with Saul in in 1 Samuel 15, God had not changed, but Saul's perception of him had changed. And so it was, or so it is, with God's anger generally. When human sin draws forth punishment or discipline from God, we haven't caught him by surprise, we haven't injured him, we cannot change him, but he's displaying a different facet of his eternal character, his unified character, through the refracting lens of time and space. He's showing his eternal hostility to evil in a way that we can see and feel, so that we might repent. So God has not changed, but his perception, our perception of him has. Now, of course, if God is truly outside of time, as we saw last week, then he can't experience anger in anything like the way that we do. Anger flares up in us and then it cools down as the moments pass. But there are no moments in God. So again, I think God's emotions must be maximal and constant. They don't fluctuate just as his being does not change. To try and put it another way, when scripture speaks of his love for us, his pleasure in our obedience or his rejoicing in our repentance, it speaks of how our temporal actions, our time-bound actions, strike a chord with something eternal and constant in God himself, his own love, his goodness. It's a bit like uh, tuning into a radio station halfway through a beautiful piece of music. The music was already playing, but we... as as one moment changes to the next, we've just become aware of it in a way that we weren't before. And in a vaguely similar way, when we do something pleasing to God, we tap into his eternal love for the good. And perhaps he gives us a time-bound expression of that. Similarly, when scripture speaks of his anger and his sorrow over human sin. I think we have to say that our actions touch upon something eternal in God, but I don't think we can say that God is eternally in a state of grief because sin and evil are not present in the Trinity. Sin and evil are only temporary things in creation, so we can't say that God has eternally been grieved within himself without reference to creation. Rather... I think it's that our actions have come into conflict with his eternal love and goodness and justice. A bit like if you touch an electric fence and then get a shock. The electricity was already flowing through the wire beforehand, but you couldn't feel it because you weren't connected to it. But as your position relative to the fence has changed from one moment to the next, so you experience something that was already there but you couldn't feel before. And in a a vaguely similar way, human sin touches upon God's eternal hostility to evil and his eternal justice. And it draws forth changing expressions of it in time and space. All of which is to say, God is emotional, but his emotions do not change like ours. They do not look quite like ours. 
And I think that even means we can say that God's internal emotional state is eternally, maximally happy as Father, Son and Holy Spirit enjoy the supreme beauty and goodness of their own being, eternally displayed to each other and then reflected as well in creation. God can even remain happy as he contemplates our sin at one level because he is delighted by the greater good that he sovereignly wills to bring out of it. Yes, there is a real sense in which he is grieved and by it and hostile to it, but it does, that doesn't overwhelm him. It doesn't compete with his overriding happiness at the good he is doing through it all. He remains opposed to our evil motives, but he rejoices in the opportunity to display his power for good and his justice and his mercy. It's a bit like when um, Joseph is finally sort of face-to-face -face with his brothers again when he's the prime minister of Egypt. And he's reunited with them, but they're fearful. What's he going to do? Is he going to kill them because they sold him as a slave? But he says to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And I think this is why Paul can say in 1 Timothy 6, verse 15, that God is the blessed God. He's blessed because he is maximally happy forever. So I wonder what's your default mental image of God like? I suspect for many of us it might be characterised by a frown a lot of the time. But there is a sense in which our God in himself is forever smiling, to use yet another imperfect human analogy. God is unchanging and blessed. Now what does this mean for our understanding of Hosea 11, which we read earlier? Where God, he spoke of a change in his very heart, with his compassion seeming to override his fierce anger. Well, it's really tricky. But I think if we take seriously all that scripture says about God being uncreated and self-existent and unchanging and timeless, I don't think it can mean that there was a genuine conflict in the, the very heart of God. Perhaps God is using these very human characterizations of himself to show that the strength of feeling in him when confronted with human evil, emotions so strong that they do appear to be in conflict, striving for dominance against his love and his mercy. Now, as we've seen, God's emotions are actually in perfect harmony. They are like different facets of the same diamond. But perhaps he wants us to see that Israel's sin is so great that he would be perfectly within his rights to destroy them all, as he did Sodom and Gomorrah and Admar and Zeboim. He really was appalled at their sin. And yet he also wants us to see that his covenant love for his elect, the remnant among Israel that he is saving, his love for them is so unwavering that he will not ultimately bring about such total destruction. 
because otherwise he would sweep away the elect remnant too. And so he appears to change. He even describes himself as changing because perhaps there is no other way that finite human beings relying on imperfect human language can understand God's strength of feeling. It is inevitable to us that those two different emotions in God should appear in conflict. And it certainly appears that he has changed in time and space. But we mustn't try to understand this apart from everything else that Scripture says about his character and nature. So I at least can't see how else to understand this passage other than that God has not actually changed in himself, but he is using human language and sort of pictures of our emotions to get across something of his strength of feeling. So, again, to sum up, God's inability to change does not make him emotionless. He does have emotions, but they are not exactly like ours. And I think we can say he is eternally, maximally happy. And this brings us to the question of God and suffering, which is the the final thing I'll try to address. If God can't change and he can't be forced to do or feel anything against his will by his creatures, then he can't suffer. Suffering comes from the loss of something good, like health or sufficient food or loving relationships. Or it comes from the infliction of something harmful, like being punched or kicked or catching a virus or being emotionally abused. But God doesn't lack anything good in himself and his creatures can't overpower him and inflict harm upon him. So God can't suffer in that sense. Now you might be tempted to think that this makes God unrelatable, aloof from our suffering, and you might find that off-putting. But even without the Incarnation, I don't think that could be true. Because when God proclaims his name, his, his character, what he's like, to Moses, next to 34, verse 6, listen to what he says. He says, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, I am, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. So God might not feel suffering in himself, but that doesn't stop him having compassion upon his frail creatures in our suffering. He clearly doesn't need to suffer in order to be compassionate. It just flows naturally from his loving nature. He pities us. And so when Psalm 34 verse 18 says... The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Again, it's speaking truthfully. God might not be able to suffer, but he's still compassionate towards us and cares about our suffering. But the incarnation, I think, puts his relatableness and his solidarity with the suffering of his creatures beyond 
all doubt. For our sakes, God the Son took on a changeable human body so that he could endure temptation and suffering and death, just like us. And even more so, because we don't usually experience temptation or suffering as bad as it possibly could be, because we give in before it grows very intense. But Jesus never gave in. So he suffered the worst that the world and the devil could throw at him. And in this way, he became perfect in obedience to the Father and the perfect saviour for us. As Hebrews 2 and 4 put it, he has become a faithful and sympathetic, that is, co-suffering high priest. One who has compassion on us in our suffering because he too suffered when he was tempted. So because of the Incarnation, we do have a sympathetic God who is fully able to help us as we struggle with suffering and change now. And I think that is a wonderful comfort. I think we should be equally comforted by God's unchanging, non-suffering, divine nature It's only because God cannot change that he can promise us an inheritance that never perishes, spoils or fades. In 1 Peter 1 verse 4. If he could change, he might get fed up with our wavering faithfulness and go back on his promises. That's the logic of Malachi 3.6. Again, I the Lord do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. It's because he doesn't change that he won't give up on us and he can genuinely promise us an eternal inheritance. Equally importantly, it's only because God cannot suffer that he can promise to end all suffering in the new creation. I think that's the only sound basis upon which Revelation 21 verse 4 can say this. He will wipe away, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. If God could be forced to feel anything that he hadn't willed by his creatures, if he could suffer pain or loss through our rebellion, he might yet decide that the pain is too much, that it's not worth it, and wash his hands of us forever. If he he could suffer in his divine nature, we could have no guarantee that he could end our suffering, or indeed that he wouldn't get fed up of us, or get too hurt by us. Now that's not to say that his divine nature is totally detached from the suffering in Jesus' human nature, As I said before, both divine and human natures belong to one person, the Son of God. And so the experience of his human nature belongs to and is known intimately by his divine nature, even though the suffering didn't cross between the natures, spilling over from one into the other. 
So God, through Jesus, knows our suffering intimately, perfectly. But God's divine nature was not changed by the incarnation or by Jesus' suffering. And it never will change either. So he will always be faithful to his promises. And this should be an immense comfort. It makes our reliance upon him, our hope in him, totally secure. And I think it's also a great help to come back to the start of all this. It's a great help when we are faced with an ever-changing world, when many things change for the worst, and we are frequently disappointed and left feeling insecure. We can rely on one who is totally unchanging. So he will never disappoint. And our identity as holy and dearly loved children with a glorious inheritance is completely secure. And better still, because God is eternally blessed, he will draw us up into a never-ending, ever-increasing experience of his blessedness in the new creation. His blessedness and inability to suffer is the guarantee of our eternal happiness. So thank God that he cannot change. Now, I've said all I was planning to say. We're almost at eight. If anyone needs to rush off, that's fine. Um, let's have a couple of questions, those who want, but it'd be really good to finish, sorry, to pray before we go. Um, pray some of this in. So perhaps a couple of questions now, then we'll pray. And then if you've still got more questions after, we can chat as we're putting cups and dishes and things away. So if, 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 if God's experience of suffering, so to speak, is through Jesus' human nature, how can we be sure that he understands the full spectrum of human suffering? Um, so I think partly from Hebrews 2 and, and, and 4, which says that he has been tempted in every way as we have. Now I think we need to be careful with what that means. Um, because Jesus didn't, his human nature was perfect. So he experienced every good and right human longing and liking. He didn't experience any of the sinful corruptions that we have. But even so, with those right human loves and longings, he experienced temptation. 
And Hebrews says he experienced them you know, in every way as we do. So as regards temptation, which is a form of suffering and yeah, leads to suffering and sin, um, I think we can we can rest assured that Jesus is, you know, understands on that front. In terms of the suffering of physical pain, I think from the cross, you know, we that was the <laughs> one of the most brutal forms of death that humanity has ever come up with, and he was flogged with a cat of nine tails with bits of broken glass and metal and bone in it beforehand and punched and kicked and everything else so he knows he knows pain all right um and i guess you could say if 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 we can say that loneliness abandonment betrayal is another form of suffering on the cross you he's he's abandoned by everyone he even cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a sense in which he, in his human nature, somehow, and I can't quite get my head around this, only knows his father in wrath at that moment. He, he is somehow in his human nature presumably no longer aware of the father's love and so feels forsaken even by the father. Um... I, I, offhand, I can't think of you know what what other categories of suffering you might come up with, but I'm pretty confident that he <laughs> he's been through them. Um, another question would be like um, like in in sort of judgment, it'll be like it talks about eternal death. Mm. So doesn't that like reflect God's you know? Because I guess even when even after the resurrection, human beings will still inhabit time and space. Um, we won't we won't have become God, we won't have become eternal spirit. Um, so I think that the idea of his anger being a manifestation of his eternal attribute of justice, his eternal hostility to evil in time and space, that still holds in hell. Um, and if you like, it is a it is a visual depiction of how his very nature repels evil. Because hell is totally separate from the new heaven and earth. I think that that's, that's got to be implied, hasn't it, in the, uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where the, uh, Lazarus is calling out, a, uh, sorry, the, the, the rich man in hell is calling out to Abraham, you know, send, to, yeah, send Lazarus down to cool my tongue. And he's thinking, there's this fixed chasm, you can't cross it. Um, whether there will be some awareness of hell from the new creation, I'm not entirely sure, because Isaiah 66 ends with the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem going out and looking upon the bodies of those who rebelled, 
whose worm never dies and the fire never goes out. Um, to be honest, I'm not quite sure what to do with that. <laughs> um, but it's like it is a visual depiction of how evil is repelled by God. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think, yeah, it's still what we said about this creation to some extent still holds good in the new creation. We will still ex experience God through the lens of time and space. Mm -hmm. Apart from, well, presumably the Father we will experience in that way. Christ we will experience face to face with his human nature mediating God to us in the most perfect way we could imagine. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And final question about how, like, how would you explain passages where it seems like people are able to change God's mind? So, like, for example, with Moses, um, with the golden calf, and Moses, mm. God is really active mm. and uh, destroying evil, and Moses, it seems like he dissuades him. Mm. Um, but God doesn't change, so he, he yeah, how, how do you work that out? So what do we do with the passages where it seems to suggest God changing his mind, yeah, like Exodus like 13, 32? So interestingly, I, I didn't realise this till recently. Um, in, in Exodus, is it Exodus 32? Um, Moses is actually appealing to God's unchangingness in that he won't, surely he won't break his promise <laughs> to Israel or to Abraham. Um, so Moses is appealing to his unchanging nature in one sense um, and again I don't know, trying to wrestle honestly with this I think I can only say that um, God is displaying to Moses what ought to happen to Israel at this point perhaps deliberately in such a way that he provokes Moses into interceding so that he can respond in grace and give us a picture of Jesus perhaps even in Moses interceding for the people. That is a picture of what Jesus does for us now. Um, I can only conclude it's deliberate. Um, yeah. Okay. We should pray, and then if there are any more questions, we can um, chat well. Yeah. Um, perhaps, like, pray on tables where you are, and then I'll wrap things up.